This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally. Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Hey, 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 everyone. Thanks for joining me another episode here. We want to talk about radical product thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter. And I really enjoyed this book. We have the author on the show today. Um, the examples from the airline industries, for example, or technology back in the day, Microsoft, and all those different examples. Very interesting. Um, and how do we create products in a smarter way? You know, I'm telling you, I have had more than my fair share of experiences when it comes to office politics. And in my opinion, I think office politics, it might be the biggest uh, issue while we can do some of these things. But let's find out what the author of the book, um, Radhika Dutt, will tell us if she disagrees or agrees with my statement. And we'll go from there, find out why she wrote the book, um, how do we move forward, and how do we learn um, as we're growing together. Hey, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you. Fist bump. Thank you for having me, Christoph. It's great to be here. So tell me, why do we need a book on radical product thinking? Like, why is this not easy for companies? And I can I can attest that it's not. And even your examples. I mean, when I saw the example about the uh, Airbus, you know, creating one plane and Boeing didn't create it at first. And then they created the 737 MAX, which we've all seen in the headlines more than we probably should have. But uh, why is this even a problem? Yeah, one of the big things that has happened over the last few decades, since the 1970s, really, is we have been uh, be, we've been more and more short-term focused um, in business. And what we've learned is we just iterate, keep iterating, uh, and that's how we build products. It's all about the speed at which we iterate so that we can create world-changing products. That's what we've learned. Um, let's think about all the mantras coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, the idea is uh, move fast, break things, fail fast, learn fast. The idea is just, you know, if you iterate long enough and fast enough, then you're going to build world-changing products. And these fundamental, these mantras need to just be fundamentally challenged. Um, that's why this book was necessary. Why do we know that these mantras need to be challenged? The thing that I keep seeing in so many organizations is that, you know, we keep running into what I call product diseases. Now, these product diseases, you know, you're going to recognize them if I mention a few. Uh, one example that you run into very frequently as a startup is the disease pivotitis. Uh, pivotitis happens when you think that you're going to try one strategy after another. Uh, so you keep trying different things to see what sticks. Um, and it leaves both customers confused and employees just feeling demoralized, right? Another example of a disease that I've run into is obsessive sales disorder, where, you know, we keep trading off uh, the vision and keep giving up on the vision uh, in exchange for short-term gains. 
Um, another common disease is strategic swelling, where we just keep expanding and expanding our product suite to try to do everything uh, without really achieving anything at a breakthrough level. Um, so these are just a few examples of product diseases, right? But throughout my experience of about 20 years, I kept finding that there are just so many companies uh, that keep running into these same product diseases over and over. And so the big question that I address in my book, um, Radical Product Thinking, is, you know, how do we uh, avoid these product diseases and how do we create products that can be really world changing? And the way we can do that is by uh, having a very clear vision and then translating that into reality very systematically. Um, and the thing, you know, I keep seeing is when we, we, we all know that we need a good vision. We just haven't had a guide for what does that actually mean? And that's some of the stuff that I address in the book. How do we take a radical approach to a vision and translating that into reality? I mean, that's like the the thirty second summary. Unbelievable! It's way harder than you just made that sound. I think um, right there. But but all these diseases, why why do we have them? And the other thing, um, life is really comes down to the definition, right? So when you say move fast, I grew up as a journalist. You know what moving fast meant for us today? That's moving fast. And I know I've heard the stories from software companies is that if you haven't done anything in your first two days while you're trying to figure out how to lo log into Slack, which, you know, sometimes is down, for example, like you're already called a failure. I mean, that's I've heard that, too. But some companies moving fast doesn't mean today, right? It means a couple weeks or a couple months. And I think this is also very interesting because in content strategy, you can do a lot of things relatively quickly, but for them to work... You have to keep going. You have to have that vision. You have to have, I mean, think about this show, right? We talk about one topic. We don't talk about everything in the world. That's the vision of the show. If you fit, you come on. If you don't fit, I don't know why people are asking me, right? So how do we figure out what is the right timeline? How long do we push forward? And how do we know we're going the right direction? I mean, how... You know, and and of course, for some companies, building a plane is very different from launching a product strategy or launching a product that you can bring to market relatively quickly. Yeah, I think what you really point there to is the fact that you know we need clarity of vision and strategy before we start with mm -hmm. execution, right? And this move fast, break things. What we have internalized is, you know, we just don't have time for strategy. And I can't tell you how many times I've actually um, heard companies say this: "We don't have time for strategy. Let's just execute." Um, and that's the fundamental thing that needs to change. You know, in terms of a timeline, we can be fast, um, and that that the speed at which we can execute, you know, that's not limited. Um, and in fact, you benefit for, from having a clear vision and strategy so that you can execute fast. Um, so what do I mean by this clarity of vision and strategy, right? When I talk about a vision, um, 
what I really mean is it's not this kind of a fluffy big vision of to be the leader in blah, blah, uh, or, you know, uh, to empower uh, someone to do blah. You know, those kinds of visions, they're not really useful for a product team to do something with. A good vision is something that answers the who, what, when, uh, why, and how. So whose world are we trying to change? What does their world look like? Meaning, what exactly is the problem and what are they doing today to solve it? Why is that unacceptable? So why is the status quo unacceptable? And if we cannot answer that, we really have no business uh, just starting any product or, or building a company, right? The next question is, once you've answered that why, well, what does the world look like when you can say mission accomplished? And then finally... Um, how will you bring about that world? So these are the five questions that we have to answer in the in the vision. And then, you know, we can translate that into a strategy. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the fundamental things that went wrong, let's pick this example that you were just mentioning in Boeing versus Airbus, right? There wasn't this sort of a clarity of a vision. It was just being reactive. So let me elaborate on the story of Boeing. What happened was, you know, Boeing had created the 737 platform, uh, you know, really a long time ago. They've had it for they had it for about 40 decades. Right. And it was their best selling platform. And it had just, you know, kind of gotten to be an old platform. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But they kept kicking the can down the road. Instead of creating a new narrow-body plane from scratch, they said, "No, you know, we'll we'll keep just we'll just iterate on the same seven three platform, make a few changes, and keep selling it." So this kept going for like forty decades, um, yeah, forty years. Sorry. And so Airbus, in the meanwhile, came up with the uh, Neo, and that was a lot more fuel efficient, had bigger engines. And so what did Boeing do? They said, well, you know what, let's just take the same 737 platform because we want to react quickly to the market. We don't want to lose, lose customers. And so they just took bigger engines and stuffed it um, on the same narrow body plane, right? Unfortunately, the 737's uh, just frame was lower. And this was, you know, uh, an issue of um, a long time ago, planes had lower frames because it was easier to load and unload cargo because it was all done manually. So it was one of those relegates of old, old times, but they stuffed these big engines under that plane. And what happened? It made the plane unstable. And so that plane became aerodynamically unstable. So they added software to kind of fix that instability mm -hmm. and that pointed the nose down. And the crashes that happened, um, Ethiopian Airlines and uh, Line Air, those happened because the software pointed the nose down. So what we see from this, right, is the company didn't have a clear vision. They didn't have, you know, they, they were just iterating. They were just reacting to the market instead of being driven by what's the change we want to bring to the market with perhaps a new narrow body plane. Instead, they were just being reactive. And the end result was they kept iterating on this platform and it led to these disastrous results. And so if there's one takeaway we can take away from that, it's that we need to be vision driven, that just being iterative it keeps us short-term focused, and that doesn't produce good long-term results. Do you, um, very interesting, do you see any difference between, um, I don't want to say 
traditional companies, established companies, and maybe newer companies. So for example, what I'm thinking is sometimes what I see in the content, see in the content world is when people just break into the content world, they try way more things, right? They try this, they try that. Like they literally are building their brain on trying things. And then all of a sudden they get to the top or whatever, you know, the close to the top as possible. And now they're just defending their kingdom for lack of a better term, right? They're just kind of like, man, I'm not, I'm not doing what got me here anymore because now I'm here, which is actually sometimes not the right answer. Um, is that part of it? I mean, Boeing, of course, um, I mean, I, I don't even want to know how many Boeing planes I've flown on over the years. Plenty, I'm sure. And <clears throat> is that part of the reason or is it are all companies affected by this one way or another? See, I think all companies run into product diseases. I think what uh, product disease you run into is a function of the size of the company. So, for example, this innovator's dilemma that you were just talking about, which is where, you know, as a company grows older and you have a more established product that it's harder to innovate. Well, that's what I call locked in syndrome, you know, where. Um, you're locked into the success of the past and it's hard to innovate and try something new because you're kind of burdened by your success from the past, right? So that's locked-in syndrome that you often see in big companies. But this idea that you can keep trying different things and smaller companies are more agile and just they, they keep trying different things, that leads to different sorts of product diseases. Uh, the example I gave you was pivotitis. And I'll share a personal example of pivotitis at a startup, right? Where... Um, we wanted to be the next visa of the world. And that was a big lofty goal. Uh, but about a month into it, we realized, you know what, that's just a really hard goal to accomplish because you have to acquire both merchants and consumers. So then we decided we're going to be um, a loyalty solutions provider for uh, merchants. Uh, and after about a month, we said, you know what, that's just a really crowded market. So we're going to pivot again. And we pivoted to becoming a credit solutions company for merchants. Now, at the time, I was the head of marketing for that startup. And honestly, I didn't even know what to write on our website anymore and what I was asking people to sign up for, right? So these diseases might be different that we see in small companies versus large, but the root cause is very similar. The root cause happens when we don't have this clarity of vision and strategy that drives our iterations. You know, I'm not saying iterating itself is bad. It's just those iterations, um, we have to think about those iterations as proving out some sort of a hypothesis um, and we need to start with those hypotheses. So that's where the vision and strategy come in. And then we translate that into iterations. And this is so true for marketing too, right? Um, so you talked about content strategy, Christoph. You know, when you have content strategy, you know, then you can try different things to see what works. But without that sort of a hypothesis in terms of what to try, what story are you trying to tell, you know, just trying a whole bunch of stuff that is completely discombobulated doesn't lead to good results. I mean, no argument here. And especially uh, content strategy does take a little bit of time. I know you can get quick results. I've seen them happen really, really quickly. When you know what story it is that you're trying to tell, if you're all over the place and you don't even know who you're trying to reach and who you're trying to write for or create the show for, uh, it's never going to work. Now, when you talk about the locked-in syndrome, 
what came to my mind is uh, Daniel Murray. He was on the show a couple of years ago, and he talked about unlearning. Uh, this is kind of similar, right? I mean, instead of just saying, uh, here's what has worked, uh, we're going to keep doing this. Sometimes you have to learn a new thing. 15 years ago, I would have not considered myself a live streamer. Today, 100%. I unlearned some of those preconceived notions I had about live streaming, and, and now I'm doing it. Is that kind of the same thing, same concept people should use? Exactly. And this is why I call it radical product thinking, because I think we do need to unlearn a lot of what we have learned in the past. You know, I started with the example of a vision. We've learned that a good vision is uh, something like uh, to be number one or number two in every market. This was GE's vision and it was touted as being great for a long time. Right. We need to unlearn that. Um, We have, you know, we've come to believe that priorities and how do you prioritize things? It seems like, you know, leadership tells you what's a priority, that leaders kind of are these visionaries who just know what should be done and they impart this wisdom and knowledge to their teams. And instead, you know, the idea behind radical product thinking is leaders should really convey intuition to their teams. How do you convey that? One of the techniques I talk about is, you know, as a leader, what you're doing is Um, you're always just thinking about trade-offs between the long term and the short term, right? And depending on where you are in terms of, you know, how much money you have, et cetera, that trade-off looks different. And so instead of leaders just imparting this wisdom to their teams, they should actually be conveying this intuition because you can't be in every meeting. So how do you get your teams to make those decisions like you would make, right? Uh, How do you make them make those right trade-offs? And so one of the ways I talk about doing that in the book is think about your decisions on an X and Y axis. Uh, Your Y axis is vision fit, is something helping your vision or not. Um, And then your X axis is survival. It's is it helping you survive in the short term or is it harming survival, right? And so things that are good for your vision and good for survival, well, duh, those are the easy decisions, right? Those are the decisions that are in the ideal quadrant. But if you always just focus on those easy decisions, then, you know, we're not being, uh, we're just always being short-term driven. So sometimes you need to invest in the vision. What this means is it's good for the vision, but it's not helping you in the short term. So, you know, let's take the example of creating a content strategy. Maybe you need to take time to really figure out what is your story. You need to align your team on that. You need to do that before you try things out. Maybe that that requires taking some time off to invest in that vision um, to create that alignment in your team. Um, If you're a software developer, you know, maybe you need to take three months to refactor code um, before you can make more changes. You're investing in the vision if you're doing that. And the opposite of that is when you're taking on vision debt. This is where it's helping you survive, but it's not good for the vision. You know, at the very beginning of the show, I was talking about obsessive sales disorder. Uh, that obsessive sales disorder, an example is, you know, your customer comes to you and says, I have this custom feature that I want. If you make this custom feature for me, you know, I'll buy this uh, product. You keep doing this. It helps you in the short term, but in the long term, you really lose your story about who you are, what product you're building, right? So that's building vision debt. And so 
as a leader, you help your team think about, you know, what's the right balance between the long term and the short term? How much vision debt are you willing to take on? Um, you know, how often are you investing in the vision? And you think about your priorities this way. So, you know, going back to the point you brought up about unlearning, this book really helps you walk through a lot of the unlearning that we need to do in terms of things that we've learned, uh, you know, about what is a good vision, leaders just kind of dictating and micromanaging um, versus, you know, this new, new paradigm for how do you create alignment in your team um, and, and really bring your team with you on the journey. You, you know, what's very interesting to me about this whole discussion is that the real dilemma is that um, we need to figure out a way for people to stay with companies. I'll give you an example because um, it took me a while to understand my boss, right? To understand what what is she trying to do? Why is she trying to do it? What's our story? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all like you don't learn about each other in five days, right? I mean, a little bit, but you don't really understand each other that quickly. And then on the flip side, we have this this new mo by a lot of people and i can't blame them quite frankly you know they stay in a company for two to four years and then they want to make more money they go somewhere else but depending on what you're doing is it takes two years for you to actually understand everybody or at least a year and then you got one year left right and then you already move on because that's the only way people make more money the, i did see a tiktok about this topic the other day yep that's exactly who we're quoting today um and this person, younger engineer, said, here's the reason why people leave jobs two to four years into them being there. No, comp no company has pensions anymore. What's my benefit of sticking around for 30 years? The way I make more money is I change jobs in a couple of years and they give me more money. Think about when you hire new people. But to truly do what you're saying and innovate together and not maybe just get stuck and sometimes being stuck certainly is a problem because everybody has been there too long and they're not unlearning things together. But how do we build those teams? How do we actually get to that level to be able to do that? Do you have any tips around that? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is if we think about our culture on the team, you know, we can really engineer the kind of culture that people want to be a part of. Um, and I talk about, you know, um, we we really thought about culture so far as this nebulous thing, right? Where culture is just, uh, well, you know, a set of values we have as a company. Like it's also nebulous. You can't do very much with it. And this is why whenever you say culture change in an organization, there, there are just so many eye rolls. So instead, you know, we could think about culture in this very um, succinct and concrete way. You can think about culture on two dimensions, whether work is fulfilling or not, and whether work is urgent or not. So if you think about these, these two axes, right, um, one quadrant that pops up is where work is fulfilling and it's not urgent. So this is where you have mental bandwidth to think about things where work feels purposeful. I call it the meaningful work quadrant. You know, for people to want to stay at a job, the larger this meaningful work quadrant is, the happier you feel at your job. You feel like you're doing things with a clear purpose, right? Um, and I think, yes, in two to four years, people want more money, et cetera. But a lot of it is when that meaningful work quadrant isn't large enough, you know, that time frame when you want to switch jobs really starts to shrink. The next quadrant I think about is the heroism quadrant, which is where work is fulfilling, but there is a lot of time pressure. There is urgency. 
So that's the heroism quadrant because it, it adds spice to your day if you have just a few tasks that fall in this quadrant. But if everything is urgent, you're constantly firefighting, customer issues, etc., that's heroism, right? And that's just the fast path to burnout. That's another reason, a big reason why people are quitting, especially during the pandemic, because it feels like this heroism quadrant is just overblown in our workday, right? Um, the next quadrant is the organizational cactus quadrant, which is where work is not fulfilling and it's um, urgent. So these are the fast things that need to happen. Maybe your boss wants a report from you about metrics. Uh, maybe you need to file expense reports. All of these things need to happen quickly. Uh, but, you know, it's just a bunch of bureaucracy that you have to deal with. And so the larger this quadrant, the more it feels like, oh, I, my work is not meaningful, right? And then the final quadrant is where work is not urgent um, and it's not fulfilling. I call this the soul-sucking quadrant. And this is the biggest quadrant why people leave. What you mentioned, Christoph, about people feeling like they're not getting paid enough and therefore they need to leave. You know, if you're experiencing a gender pay gap uh, where you feel like you're not, you know, whether paid enough or treated well enough that you have to, you know, you can't really voice your opinion at work or disagree with your boss. All of those things put you in the, the soul-sucking quadrant. So a good work culture maximizes the meaningful work quadrant and it minimizes the heroism, organizational cactus and soul sucking quadrants. And that's the culture that we can very systematically engineer by talking about, you know, are we creating this culture? What tasks are we doing in each of these quadrants and how do we improve that? Um, and, and I think, you know, going back to your point of what makes people stay is if we can engineer a good culture. And I talk about that in the book as well. As part of allowing for innovation, we need to create a good culture in our organization. Don't even get me started on urgency. Uh, there's no marketing emergencies. There might be some PR emergencies, but that's very different, right? Something happens and you have to respond to it as, as a company. But the whole, I think the whole urgency thing, a lot of times, you know, for the most part, I think it's really a power uh, power grab, right? You want people to do something right now. Why Why do you need the the expense report right now? Because I, I'm working on it right now. That's why. That's the emergency, quite frankly. The other thing um, to wrap us up here is how do people work today? And I just saw, uh, maybe it was a TikTok as well, this, this um, woman had to go back to the office after working at home for the last two years. And she says, basically, I'm leaving my home for 12 hours to work for aid, right? Lunch hour, hour and a half there. It's unbelievable. So we do want to keep that in mind as well. It was great to have you on the show. Enjoyed the book very much. Um, check it out, everyone. Um, on Amazon, I believe right now it's available for um, 99 cents or maybe even lower. Um, so if you're watching live, check it out there right now. Uh, can't say that that price will be on there if you're listening on the podcast, but definitely recommend it. Thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win. Thank you.